0: it's monday april 27th and boris johnson is back at work i'm sean ramos firm and this is your coronavirus update from today explained bojo has fully resumed his post as prime minister of the united kingdom first up for boris dealing with the lockdown a bunch of mps want to reopen boris is saying hold your horses speaking outside 10 downing street he said today i know it is tough and I want to get this economy moving as fast as I can, but I refuse to throw away all the effort and the sacrifice of the British people and to risk a second major outbreak and huge loss of life and the overwhelming of the NHS. Way down under in New Zealand, they're saying they've managed to stop community transmission of COVID-19 with new cases in the single digits. Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern said the virus was currently... Eliminated starting Tuesday. Some non-essential business will resume in the country, but most people will still be required to remain at home and avoid social gatherings. We are opening up the economy, but we're not opening up people's social lives, Ardern said at her daily briefing. Meanwhile, in the United States of America. States are easing lockdown restrictions, even though we have the most confirmed cases and deaths of any country in the world, and by all accounts, nowhere near enough. Testing, the right Honorable Dr. Deborah Burks, coordinator of the White House's Coronavirus Task Force, says it's going to be a lonely summer. Social distancing must continue even as the weather turns. In the Golden State, where the weather has already turned, Governor Gavin Newsom reminded Californians to stay at home and practice social distancing after a weekend of packed beaches in Southern California. He said this virus doesn't go home, because it's a beautiful, sunny day around our coasts. And not even an hour after the federal government started accepting new loan applications from small businesses today, the website crashed. You can get in touch with Today Explained, email todayexplained at vox.com or tweet at us. We're at today underscore explained. I'm at Ramis Firm. We also have a listener voicemail line. The math is 202-688-5944.
1: Visit plannedparenthood.org slash future to learn more and support their cause.
0: David Roberts, you cover climate and energy for Vox. And last week, a lot of our listeners were hitting us up and saying they had a question about one particular aspect of of energy and how it works in this country. And and that question was, how does oil work? How does it work, David?
2: (laughs) How much time do you have, Sean? (laughs) We're like a 20-minute show usually. (laughs) Well, dinosaurs die. (laughs) The main thing to know about oil is it's traded on a global market. So global prices are our prices, our prices are global prices. And uh, it is traded on a global market through two kinds of markets. One is called a spot market, which is what you get on if you want actual oil, like if you want physical oil delivered to you quickly. And then there are several what are called futures, markets, which uh, are familiar to anybody who sort of follows commodities, commodities trading, which is just kind of you're making a bet on what the future price of oil will be. And what happened last week is people started concluding that the future price of oil was extremely low so these futures contracts you buy especially on a short term on a, on a day-to-day market which is what uh, people were following last week you buy and sell these futures contracts throughout the month and then at the end of the month they come due which means if you're holding some of these you get the oil delivered to you and most of the people participating in these futures markets don't want to actual oil and don't have the capacity to store a bunch of oil. They're just kind of speculators and traders that you know that are that are common in every market. So what happens is at the end of a month, when these contracts are gonna come due, all these people who have bought futures have to sell them and get rid of them, lest they find themselves the recipient of thousands of barrels of oil. What a system. <laughs> the problem is Uh, Last week, everybody had concluded that the future price of oil was basically zero, so no one wanted to buy a bunch of futures, but the contracts were coming up, and so what you had is a whole bunch of oil traders who were in dire threat of getting stuck with actual oil, which they don't want, right? So they're all at the end of the month trying to get rid of their futures. They're trying to sell these oil futures. And all of a sudden, everybody who had any of them was trying to sell them. So the price went down and down and down. Below zero, the
0: most extraordinary development that took place today, when the U.S. main blend, West Texas Intermediate, fell more than 306%. You see it on the screen. It is negative $37.63
2: a barrel. In other words, there were a lot of oil traders who were saying, listen, I can't accept delivery of a bunch of oil. Someone's got to buy these. I will literally pay you to take them off my hands. I can't get stuck with oil, so I got to get rid of the futures, so I'll pay you to take my oil futures. That's what a negative price is. It's not that you can just go to the gas station and they'll pay you to fill up or anything like that. This is just futures, in a sense, an artifact of the futures market that you can go below zero. And that's just, nobody wants to get stuck holding the bag at the end of it. So everybody was furiously trying to get rid of their oil futures. And that's how you get negative $37 oil prices which are unprecedented, as far as I know, in all of world history.
0: It's never happened. It has
2: never happened. And if you told someone even a month ago that it was even a possibility, you would have been laughed out of the room. It is utterly mind-boggling and unprecedented and novel and crazy.
0: Wow. Okay, that was a pretty good explanation of what happened. We're still going to keep talking, though, because something happened the next day where they just kind of came right back, right? They went positive.
1: After a volatile trading session, oil jumped 40% at its high. The US benchmark West Texas Intermediate rose 19% and closed at 1378 per barrel.
2: It's funny that that's that's the bar where <laughs> we've set now. Is is it above 0? Uh but, but what happens is the futures contracts kind of reset at the end of the month. So they kind of started the monthly cycle Over again. So they were no longer, you no longer had a bunch of people frantic to get rid of them. So the price rebounded. But let's keep in mind that when we say rebound, what we mean is that it got back up to like $10. And even three or four months ago, oil was trading at roughly $70 a barrel. And even at $70 a barrel, there was constant discussion among oil types about persistent low prices. And about how those low prices were putting immense pressure on on various producers. So it's not like 70 was great for them. But now it's trading at 10 now. And who knows how it's going to bounce around. But it's definitely not going to bounce back up to 70. And the longer it stays low, the more pain the industry feels. And the pain is due to the coronavirus? Well... It's kind of a perfect storm situation going into the coronavirus like months ago, feels like decades, but months ago, before the coronavirus was a big deal, already the oil and gas industry was facing several structural problems, one of which was persistent oversupply, which was uh, producing persistent low prices. So low prices were already... A problem going into this. Also, um, more and more financial institutions have been turning away from oil and gas. So your big like investment banks and investment groups have been making various pledges to decarbonize their investment portfolio. So a lot of them are just pulling completely out of coal plant investments, for instance, or reducing their exposure to oil and gas. And part of that is because governments and the, the world is taking climate change seriously and you know public pressure is beginning to mount and political pressure is beginning to mount and people are beginning to turn away from fossil fuels for climate-related reasons. And even the financial institutions that don't care about climate definitely care that other people care about climate, right? <laughs> That's a risk. It's, if people are turning against oil and gas, that's a risk. That's a material risk. So financial institutions were turning away from oil and gas, withdrawing their investments. Meanwhile, transportation is 70% of global petroleum demand. It's the biggest use of oil uh, in the world is getting around in planes and trains and automobiles. And what's been happening is that the price of renewable energy is falling super quickly. And Electric vehicles are scaling up and getting cheaper super quickly. And so a lot of analysts are saying, look, the the economics of using oil to make gas and diesel to run vehicles relative to the economics of using clean electricity to power electric vehicles are just cratering permanently, like they're on permanent structural decline clean power fueled electric vehicles are are on an inexorable rise and it's happening faster than anybody thought it was so that's another giant vulnerability for oil and gas that was sort of exploding in its face before the virus even showed up and thirdly a lot of these companies have been paying out more in shareholder uh, distributions and and executive packages than they have been making in cash flow, in revenue. And they've been covering that difference with debt, like Exxon, for instance. And that's true, especially in the companies that are focused on shale gas, uh, fracking gas in the U.S. Notoriously debt-fueled sector. And now we've got this oversupply, we've got demand declining, we've got your ability to store it somewhere declining, prices declining, and so all the, and now all that debt is coming due to those companies. All that was happening before the virus showed up. So when the virus showed up, it basically shut down global demand, specifically transportation, especially transportation. No one's moving. That just hyper accelerated all the negative trends that were already bedeviling this industry like really violently accelerated them they were in trouble before this they just kind of brought it to a head in an extremely sort of dramatic fashion
0: more with david after a break
1: To learn more and support their cause.
0: So after oil went negative last week, President Trump tweeted, of course, that he will never let the oil and gas industry, the great United States oil and gas industry, suffer. What's his plan to save it right now?
2: So, I mean, there's a couple of things Trump could do. He can fill up the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which he's close to doing. He can give them access to this giant small business loan fund that's been created by Congress. He can relax pollution regulations, which he is doing at a furious pace, relax regulations across the board. But all of those in the end are fairly marginal. Trump does not have a tool. No national government has a tool large enough to be more than a rounding error on the scale of the catastrophe that is facing the oil and gas industry. So, I mean, even if the oil and gas industry had a whole coterie of world leaders devoted to serving it as it in fact does, it's just not clear that they can do much. Like for instance, Trump organized this deal between Saudi Arabia and Russia. I just spoke with the president of Russia, Vladimir Putin and the king of Saudi Arabia, King Solomon. And we had a big talk as to uh, oil production and OPEC and uh, making it so that our industry does well and the oil industry does better than it's doing right now. It's uh, Russia and Saudi Arabia used to be the top oil and gas producers in the world a decade ago. Oil from the US, oil and shale gas from the US have made the US number one over the last decade. Even before the coronavirus, Russia and Saudi Arabia were in this price war, each cutting the price of their oil, trying to undercut the other, which, of course, results in low global prices, which hurt everyone. There's this terrible cycle that only got accelerated by the virus. So, like, Trump comes in and ma- organizes this deal between them. President Trump uh,
1: tweeting uh, that the oil markets are going to see a huge cut in uh, output. He says, quote, just spoke to my friend MBS, the crown prince over in Saudi Arabia, uh, who spoke with President Putin of Russia. Uh, and I expect and hope that they will be cutting back approximately 10 million barrels a day and maybe substantially more. Which, well, if it happens...
2: I mean, the difference between supply and demand is something like $30 barrels a day, even today. So it's just like even that is a drop in the bucket. But it's just not clear that he's got the tools or that any government has the tools to substantially affect this, what is an enormous title force that's across the world now. It's bigger than what governments can do. Sounds like a great opportunity for a Green New Deal, David. Oh, what a what an interesting idea, Sean. It's interesting that you would you would think of that. You know, the broad theme here is the economy is shut down. So why not when it restarts fix some of the parts of it that aren't working so well? We should restart the economy in as clean a way as possible. Let's now that like air pollution's down and greenhouse gases are down. And, you know, you're seeing all these pictures from all over the world of like, in India, they're like, oh my God, we can see the Himalayas. The Himalayas are still there. Like all these people around the world discovering the joys of clean air. And there's been all this new research over the last decade, which I know Vox has, Vox has written a ton about, of of how air pollution is so much worse, so much more pervasive and so much worse for health than we had even known so the benefits of reducing air pollution just are getting bigger and bigger and here we are with like a whole bunch of air pollution gone let's try to come back in a way that doesn't just resume all our old polluting activities let's try to sort of push electric vehicles let's push renewables let's push teleworking and and working remotely let's all these business people now who are figuring out how to do business without flying multiple times a week let's try to like encourage that and cement that in place and incentivize that let's try to when we bring the economy back let's bring back a cleaner economy that i think makes sense to people and it is occurring to governments across the world and lots of them are doing lots of stuff along those lines like and typically what happens when recessions end like if you look back at history you know greenhouse gases and pollution fall during a recession and then tend to roar back even to higher levels than previously when the economy recovers uh, presumably we don't want that to happen so good policy right some foresight and good policy could prevent that from happening it's just a it's a golden and very obvious opportunity but will that happen unfortunately <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, the country today is run by people who are clinging to the past socially, economically, rhetorically, demographically. Choose your adverb. And one of the ways they're clinging to the past is clinging to fossil fuels. They're very committed to fossil fuels. So, I mean, the situation you have is a large scale structural global transition underway from fossil fuels to clean energy. And I think almost every serious analyst will tell you now the transition is happening. It is inexorable. It is unstoppable. The only question now is how fast, how fast are we going to do it? How much more pollution are we going to put out into the air before we do this? Like how many more people are going to die of respiratory illnesses before we do this? How fast will it happen? And so What Trump and Republicans are doing with their sort of frantic efforts to subsidize fossil fuels and release them and and deregulate them is at best slow this transition in the U.S. such that other countries leap ahead of us and capture these industries that we know are going to be the growth industries of the 21st century. We know that renewable energy and clean tech and clean home energy appliances and smart grid technology and smart EVs and smart batteries, just like the whole skein of clean energy technologies are all poised for enormous growth throughout this century. And some countries are going to be smart enough to use this big economic pause grab onto them and to accelerate them and to dominate them. And all we're going to do by delaying that transition is let a few more people die from pollution, let climate change get a little bit worse, slow the transition and fall behind in the dominant industries of the 21st century. There's no long-term plan The future is gonna happen, right? You're either gonna walk into it eyes open, or you're gonna do what the US is currently doing, which is flail about wildly with a blindfold over your eyes as like events come and smack you upside the head. Well,
0: when those eyes open, we'll call you up to explain the best path forward. <laughs>
2: All right, thanks, Sean. Thank you, David.